In 2018, prominent Western critics began pointing out that China's lending practices to developing countries was a form of debt trap diplomacy. These critics have claimed that Beijing pushes poor countries into borrowing money from Chinese banks to pay for large infrastructure projects with no prospect of commercial success. The end goal is that these onerous terms and revenues eventually push these countries into default. At this point, Beijing demands the infrastructure as collateral, forcing them to surrender control to a Chinese firm. Hello and welcome to the Siding Africa podcast. My name is Parbon and I have with me three fellow students, Brandon, Helena and Paulina. We are here to lift the lid on the concept of debt trap diplomacy in the context of Africa. We will explore the Standard Gauge Railway project in Kenya, a multi-million dollar infrastructure project that was completed in 2016. Is the SGR a part of a Chinese debt trap? More importantly, what kinds of knowledge are driving this narrative? In this podcast, we discuss this critical issue about the knowledge surrounding the SGR by defining debt trap diplomacy and providing some background on the SGR project in Kenya and what it represents for Kenya's overall development. Then we debate the issue of asset seizure, which is at the crux of this conversation around the debt trap. We also analyze some leaked documents, which provide us some insight into the details of the SGR project. Before we sum up, we consider whether the SGR is economically viable and the nuances associated with its financial sustainability. To shed some light on the Kenyan perspective, we assess the SGR in the context of Kenyan politics by bringing in a professor from the LSC. This conversation will certainly ebb and flow with many twists and turns. But before we get started, let's discuss what we mean by debt trap diplomacy. Hilly, could you tell us a bit more? Thanks, Parbon. So debt trap diplomacy is a phrase that was made popular um, mostly in the Trump administration. And the so-called debt trap is created when one, a rich country lends to poor countries, intentionally overwhelming them with unsustainable debt and two, forcing them to surrender strategic assets or concede political leverage. Now, the term had been used by a number of political leaders, but most famously by Mike Pence, the former vice president of the US, to warn of China's strategic use of debt. But where did the term come from originally? The term was actually coined by Brahma Chalini, an Indian academic, but it entered mainstream media when Mike Pence used it to describe Chinese lending practices in Africa. By and large, the term came out of a Western view of Chinese investments in Africa. So how is debt trap diplomacy related to the SGR and the knowledge produced surrounding it? To explore this further, I will leave you in the warm embrace of Brandon. Thanks, Parbon. Okay, so let's start things off in the 1800s. This is the colonial period. And at this time, the British East Africa Company was investing heavily in Kenyan infrastructure, for example, building rail lines throughout the country. However, by the 2000s, the colonial era railways were fast falling apart, slowing down the transports of goods and passengers. Um, So, for example, a journey from Mombasa to Nairobi now took twice as long. It used to be a 12-hour journey. It now took 24 hours. And that's just for a 480-kilometer trip. To put that into perspective, that's about the distance from Scotland to London, which is about a five-hour train journey. So as we can see, um, the infrastructure is becoming increasingly inefficient. And what Kenya needed 
then was new efficient infrastructure to attract foreign businesses, to increase economic productivity and so forth. Um, and it turns out what Kenya needed, China had in the form of two large infrastructure loans to fund a modern railway. The first phase of the project would see a high-speed rail connect Mombasa to Nairobi and the second phase um, an extension of that line from Nairobi to Naivasha. But, I mean, this is no small feat by any means. The loans stacked up to a hefty $3.6 billion, huge amount of money, and an unprecedented amount, actually. At the time, it was the most expensive infrastructure project in Kenya. When this was initiated, when it was announced, some people celebrated, others weren't so happy. I mean, there's been mixed feelings about the deal struck between China's Export-Import Bank and the Kenyan government. Um, and people have been questioning whether this project is really in the interest of the Kenyan people. There are concerns about its economic viability and whether the Kenyan people will really be able to afford the high fees to travel on rail. Weren't there also some concerns about the seizure of some Kenyan assets? Yes, you're right. There were some concerns and these kind of originated from some leaked documents. So China's Export-Import Bank, they keep their contracts extremely confidential, but some of them made their way onto social media. They were leaked and this has kind of started this concern of some Kenyan assets being seized. So Yash Palgai, he's a Kenyan constitutional law professor, a very formidable figure in Kenya. Um, he published an article discussing some of these leaked documents and the clauses within them. Um, in particular, he looks at clause 5.5, which states that neither the borrower, Kenya, nor any of its assets is entitled to any right of immunity on the grounds of sovereignty or otherwise. What this means is that any Kenyan asset can be seized. Um, and Yashpal Gai has interpreted this as to saying, if Kenya failed to pay back the loans, Kenyan assets will be seized and it's Mombasa port, which has been the key asset which people are suspicious of. So do we know if the leaked documents are credible? We can't say for sure. With any leaked documents, there's always going to be skepticism about the authenticity. And this is certainly the case here. Um, what this means is that any knowledge that's produced using these leaked documents as evidence is going to have question marks around it. I hear what you're saying about the authenticity of these leaked documents, but I just want to take us back to Yashpal Gai's take on it. One might assume that legal documents only have one interpretation to it, but there's actually a different story brought forward by the research team around Deborah Breitigam at the China-Africa Research Initiative at the John Hopkins University in Washington. They are referring to the asset seizure part of the potential debt trap diplomacy. And now it's getting a bit complicated. They said that it was only a rumor that there's the possibility of the Mombasa port being seized. This happened because in the complex contracts, Kenya's Auditor General supposedly mislabeled Kenya's port authority, who owned the port, as borrowers. By doing so, it implied that the port is a form of collateral for the Exxon Bank loan. Precisely, they found two misunderstandings in its interpretation. One is the inclusion of the immunity waiver of sovereignty. What exactly is the waiver of sovereignty? So the waiver of sovereignty means that states are immune from lawsuits and cannot be compelled to appear before a foreign court or arbitration venue. However, because international banks always demand guarantees to cover their lendings, immunity waiver clauses are incorporated in all international commercial loans or sovereign bond contracts, which is also done by the UK, Germany, Spain or Austria. 
there's a large difference between a general sovereignty immunity waiver signed by all the parties so, to such a contract and the specification of a particular asset like the port as collateral, which we are talking about in this specific case. So if the port's not a borrower, what role does it play? Well, when the SGR was initially developed, there were concerns about the ability of the project to generate revenues. This is when the SGR brought in the Kenya Port Authority, a major customer, into the project. This eventually took the shape of a take-or-pay agreement between the Kenya Port Authority and the Kenya Railway Corporation to ensure that there is enough money to be able to make the project viable. Eventually, this was wrongly reported by the New York Times as an asset sea seizure, even though the actual role of the KPA was only as a commercial partner to the project. And thus, the KPA is just a major client of the Standard Gauge Railway and not its collateral. What Bräutigam et al. highlight in the recent paper is also that both parts, the inclusion of the immunity waiver of sovereignty, as well as including a major commercial partner, it's not, it's not different from what other Western partners do, which is very interesting looking at the narrative which has been established about Chinese debt trap policy. Okay, so to summarize, Kenya's port authority is actually not a borrower, but it does still seem possible, given parts of the leaked documents, Clause 5.5 especially, that there's potential for Kenyan assets to be seized. This being said, the loans are not that different from the ones given out by other international lenders like the World Bank or the IMF. And I think that's quite interesting that despite the similarities between the contracts of Western lenders and the Chinese contracts in the leaked documents, the differences in knowledge that's being produced in each case. So the first criteria for debt trap diplomacy was asset seizure. We've kind of covered the knowledge that's been produced on that. Let's look at the second criteria, economic sustainability. Hilly, what can you tell us about the economic sustainability of the loans and the project? Thanks for asking, Brandon. So World Bank uh, and IMF set up a report in 2020 where they said that Kenya's debt is sustainable. However, they also pointed out that it's gone from moderate to high. Hone et al. highlight that Kenya's overall public debt has increased in recent years. Gross public debt increased from 52.2% GDP at the end of 2015 to an estimated 61.7% of GDP at the end of 2019. Furthermore, it was found that among a third of Kenya's debt was from bilateral agreements, of which 72% is owed mainly due to loans from China to finance construction of the SGR railway project. There are also criticisms of the SGR project from its inception. One was from a Canadian consultancy report in 2009 and another from a World Bank study in 2013, both stating that building a new railway did not make economic sense. This was further reiterated by two Kenyan railway experts who suggested upgrading the old meter gauge railway rather than building a complete new railway in its place. Wait a second, Hilly. I want to take it back to something you just said. You said that the economic feasibility of these projects are judged on how much Sino-Kenyan debt there is. But how robust are these estimates? Funny you should ask that, Brandon. Um, despite the numerous estimations, there is a problem of hidden debt. Because of the opacity of China's loans, um, it's been reported that 50% of China's lending to developing countries is not reported to the IMF or the World Bank. And these hidden debts are distorting policy surveillance, 
they're causing risk pricing and debt sustainability analysis has become quite difficult. Right, so what you're saying is that these estimates, which are based on the amount of Chinese and Kenya debt, are actually dubious because of this hidden debt problem. That's exactly correct. While there's a lot of opacity in smoke and mirrors, I think there's not only one party to blame. While China is definitely not being transparent and fueling all the narratives about their debt trap diplomacy and limiting the possibilities of knowledge production in this field, finally, it is the responsibility of the Kenyan government in a, in a democracy to ensure that the loans they are taking on are economically viable and they can justify it for their population. To explore this further, let's unravel the nuances of knowledge production in Kenya. We asked Professor Chris Alden, who is the director of LSE Ideas and has done a lot of work on the politics behind the SGR in Kenya, to share his expert opinion on how the existing knowledge has been used and reused in Kenyan politics. Kenyatta, as with many uh, politicians, or at least African politicians, have used the Chinese around election time to deliver something big, yes. to, to kind of, you know, overwhelm, overall their, their mm. uh, political opponents saying, see what I deliver. And yeah. then you see, you know, the day after the election, uh, various problems, either the, the fact that the deal wasn't as, as secure as they made it out to be, uh, yeah, that was the case in the DRC, um, and, and uh, Angola, some issues there, different kinds of issues, but but uh, um, the, the 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 drivers of these things, one has to untangle the interests and drivers, and then the cumulative effect is to saddle countries like Kenya with a big mega project that that they can't afford ultimately. And that's interesting. So what I'm hearing from Chris there is that it seems like the election cycle is actually having an influence on the kind of knowledge that Kenyatta's government is producing, the kind of discourse and narratives um, that they're throwing out. And it also seems like this political cycle as well um, has produced this kind of over-optimism, um, which is maybe why they signed these contracts, which have turned out to be unsustainable. Um, I mean, now we've seen that China has, has pulled out of, of, uh, of the SGR. So that could be an effect of um, this sort of rash decision-making um, because of this political cycle. But wait, stop. Well, that's a question itself. Has China pulled out or has Kenya continued without, without them? So I thought that it would be that the Kenyan National Treasury pulled out, but then Professor Alden indicated that China realized that those mega infrastructure projects are not as fruitful as they thought and that it's not that easy to be a big creditor as they are like um, very recently doing this. So it's actually an absolutely different reading that that you just said and that Chris Alden said. So the problem remains that no one actually knows about these negotiations. So it's just people with different knowledge backgrounds and different, different motivations reading into this. That's very interesting. I wonder if now, I mean, so we hear that there's one, one um, perspective is that China's pulled out, another is that Kenya's walked away. Can I just if, interrupt yeah. people? Can I just say that we are so busy looking at the Western perspective, the Chinese perspective, what the IMF is saying, what the World Bank has reported. Can I just ask, what, what about Kenya's perspective? I mean, has anybody just stopped to think about not the damage it might be doing to Kenya's economy, not the damage it might be doing to their GDP per capita. What I'm saying is, have we thought about what Kenya was getting out of this deal. There has to be some agency here. They were not being led 
like sheep to the slaughter. It's, you know, they went in knowing what the deal was. Have we thought about what their geopolitical agendas were or where mm. they were going with this? This is true. This is something we do need to discuss is uh, this aspect of Kenyan politics and micro politics as well that have a, a big influence on these projects. Um, actually, Chris had something to say about this. Should we um, have a listen? Yeah, sure. Talking about local politicians, what do you think are the problems that occurred within Kenya, within Kenyan politics between the government and, and the population regarding the Kenyan Well, one of, one of the things that was interesting about this, and, and um, my colleague Oscar, yeah. Dr. Otello, should, should um, elaborate on this, is that um, where there were, were stoppages, and there were stoppages uh, in the building of the, of the, the standard gauge railway across the board, sort of each stage within Kenya, from Mombasa up, up to um, Nairobi and beyond. Um, and at least in the first stage, um, there were local politicians who were use, uh, using uh, local populations to, you know, possibly revving them up, getting them quite uh, concerned and excited about these things to protest the fact that they weren't getting jobs through this uh, and the like. Interestingly enough, the same politicians uh, once were, were visited by uh, uh, Kenyatta and others and found themselves uh, and, and suddenly were, were locked into the deal uh, themselves. Their own commercial interests were locked in and then they, uh, the protest, that they, the, they uh, stopped protesting. So it was an, what's happened with decentralized county center politics in, in Kenya is that uh, that, you know, that local politicians um, can use local po grievances and neglect to secure as a means of securing resources, extracting resources out of these big deals, and their they ex their resource was our votes, our mobilization in exchange for um, a, a slice of the pie, a, you know, a supplier's contract um, or different things like that. Mm. So it's, it's become invested in the domestic politics of Kenya as well. And that's, that's a really interesting perspective, hearing how local politics and the interests of local politicians and also their constituencies is influencing the way that, these, that the SGL was rolled out and some of the stoppages and complications um, was actually because of local politics. It takes it really down to the ground level. Um, it reminds me actually of a paper I recently read called The Politics and Poetics of Infrastructure by Brian Larkin. And in that paper he speaks about um, infrastructure projects, typically we take them, their, their value or their function to be, in the case of a railway for example, transport. It's to take goods from A to B or passengers from one location to another. Um, but in this paper he points out and um, he cites Akhil Mbembe um, to make this point that the awarding of infrastructure projects has more to do with gaining asset access to government contracts, rewarding patron-client relationships, um, than, it does to, than it does with the actual technical function of the infrastructure. And this is why roads disappear, this is why um, railways are never built, or in the case of the SGR, you have these starts and stoppages um, throughout. So it seems like the local politicians were doing this. They were supporting or, or um, 
fighting against the SGR depending on whether or not they could have patron-client relationships sustained, whether they had government contracts coming their way. Exactly. I think that's that's probably what's happened. Uh, you know, we we look at it and we think to ourselves, well, you know, it's, it's all about, like you said, how much freight and how many passengers and how much money is coming out of it. But I think in this case, Kenyatta and probably the local politicians did exactly that. Mm. They're in favour when it works for them and mm. who knows what happens when it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with the local uh, politicians' uh, insights that, that you shared. It's very interesting to see the evolution of local knowledge over time once uh, local politicians realize that their own uh, vested business interests are within the project because of backward linkages to their own supply chains and their, to their own industries, their ability to use local grievances about the railway project changes. They're a lot more likely to support it. Uh, they're less likely to mobilize local groups against the project. So it, it's very interesting to see how the knowledge changes according to the, their own commercial interests. Mm. That's actually, I think that's important what you said as well. Um, another paper which I recently came across, um, it was called, it's called Under Construction, it's by Kimari, it's a 2021 paper. And this paper speaks about how the Kenyan opinion or the Kenyan narratives and discourses about the SGR and about Sino-Kenyan relationships more generally are constantly in flux. And they're changing, and this could be, as you said, due to due to whether um, at any one period of time the contracts are coming in your direction, or for you know even go further down to the micro level whether the jobs are uh, um, whether you've been employed by the SGR or not, you've been denied or accepted a job. Well, a new narrative is going to be coming out now because obviously the project has been moved from China's hands to to local hands, hasn't it? So. Obviously, that's going to put a new spin on things, mm. one would assume. Definitely. I think I can imagine, and I'm going to make a prediction here, that probably Kenyatta will say, look at this political win. I've managed to bring this project into African hands. I've nationalised it. There's going to be maybe some sort of independence narrative um, that comes out of it, maybe. Even though he was the one making the deal with China in the first place. Exactly. Now, now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's turn to our original question. Does the knowledge that's been produced on this topic point to a Dutch diplomacy? I think that making concrete conclusions regarding the SGR and whether it's a debt trap or not is premature at this point in time as we have limited facts um, that are open to interpretation as has been evidenced by the narrative so far. The thing is that the narratives of each stakeholder are so inconclusive. Actually, I wouldn't say the narratives are inconclusive. I think they're quite expressive in their own way. They're quite heavily shaped by the knowledge that is available to each stakeholder and also, I would say, by their own vested commercial and political interests, which uh, we can see from the divergence in the narratives that we have explored in this podcast. Mm, yeah, I'd agree with this, actually. I think one thing that's been clear throughout is the opaqueness and untransparency of all of the contracts. Yet despite this, various commentators have made fairly confident conclusions as to whether they think this is an example of debt trap diplomacy. So it's interesting to note that in the absence of solid evidence, it seems that the conclusions are often drawn in line with the vested interests of the respective commentators. Okay, I see what you mean. This is so relevant because because of these differences, we are unable to actually answer whether this is a debt trap diplomacy or because of this jungle of narratives. 
And this non-existing knowledge doesn't shape only narratives, but also policy decisions affecting lives of real people. I mean, real lives. <laughs> um, and it's just like the SGR is just one example in this jungle of myth and stories on Chinese investments in Africa. And looking at this whole field, one always needs to keep in mind that every narrative and every produced knowledge and everything, everyone who presents certain things as facts um, only bases their arguments on the intransparent information on Chinese investment. Yeah, and in answering the earlier question that I put out, I would say that the jury is still out on whether this is a debt trap, and the jury is certainly out about whether the SGR is a successful project in benefiting the lives of Kenyans. Um, and I personally would be quite interested in revisiting this, this discussion in a few years' time when there is more facts and there is more evidence available, not just uh, leaked reports and not a jungle of narratives that we have now. Mm, definitely. I mean, not only is the railway still under construction, but some of the various discourses surrounding it. So I too, I think it would be interesting to see that when more evidence is available, if we have a clearer picture. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, no one who is more keen on more data on Chinese investments than I am. But actually, also in the future, the narratives will, that will be created will again depend on these vested interests of the stakeholders, of the people producing the knowledge, and on the knowledge available to actually interpretate the knowledge, and that will continue to shape the narratives and the knowledge surrounding the SGR. Right, so what we're left with then is a perpetual state of inconclusivity. I think that's how we have to leave things. Um, thank you very much, everyone. This has been our episode of Citing Africa. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you.